The American dream inspires many, but it's not without its flaws. The reality is people experience workforce discrimination in many forms. It's time to open our eyes and have challenging yet enlightening conversations. It's not always easy, but we need to start in order to make a difference. That conversation begins here. Welcome to the Untapped Podcast. Welcome back to another new episode of the Untapped Podcast. Today, we welcome Patricia, a database manager, talent source specialist, a diversity and inclusion lead, and the curator of hashtag Black LinkedIn. We are ecstatic to have this opportunity to sit down with Patricia and hear her story and the impact she's making for people of color. Patricia, welcome to the Untapped Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for this opportunity and the opportunity to just talk to your audience about diversity and inclusion and a lot of things about me and what I'm doing with Black LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining. So to kick things off, give us a little bit of background about your education career and kind of how you got into what you do today. Right. So I have my bachelor's degree in pre-law history. I studied constitutional law um, and history of different um, cultures in my undergrad. And that was at UNLV. Um, After getting that degree, I moved on to get my master's degree in humanities, uh, where, again, I studied cultures and development, but based on um, the cities. Uh, So all the major metropolitan cities around. And I got my master's from California State Dominguez Hills. Um, while I was doing all of that, of course, I was working. I've worked as an um, a secretary, a office assistant, executive administrative assistant for quite some time. And during that, um, I picked up my database management skills. So I've had the opportunity to run some financial um, databases, some political ones when I worked as an intern for Senator Ricardo Lara, done some things as well as working with philanthropy. And, and talking about uh, grants and things of that nature. And currently I'm a database manager at a medical school where I do a lot of evaluation for students. Um, in between that time, I also worked with a, di- a couple of different tech companies. So that's how I got into tech. I went from higher ed to tech, working with the Zuckerbergs and their philanthropy and helping them build that out. Um, and then I went off to help a sports betting company. Um, I've worked in data as far as, far as pharmaceuticals go. Um, and now again, like I said, I'm in the medical field uh, as a coordinator for the medical school here at UNLV, uh, Kirk Kirkarian School at UNLV. Busy lady, very busy. I remember our first conversation, I was like, she might got me beat. <laughs> she <said> how busy <laughs> she is. Yeah, yeah. I'm at 65 hours a week, um, full-time as a coordinator at UNLV, and then I'm also part-time uh, a talent sourcer and a diversity lead with John Hopkins University, and I've been doing that the entire pandemic. So, um, and on top of running Black LinkedIn, which was a, a blessing within itself. So yeah, quite busy. <laughs> so I'm going to go straight into this. Tell us more about Black LinkedIn. Right. Black LinkedIn really came out of the time when there was a lot of advocacy going for George Floyd. So if you remember that time, there was there was uprising and protests, um, unfortunately, due to the loss of, of George Floyd because of police brutality. And, you know, I was on LinkedIn and I was one of those people who who love to advocate and talk about these really hot topics around BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous people of color, which is my focus as a diversity specialist. And with that being said, I really noticed on LinkedIn that a lot of my posts were not circulating the way that they used to, um, kind of from a techie family. So reading the algorithm wasn't too hard for me to kind of understand. And that's when I realized that we were kind of being shadow banned in a way for talking about these hot topics. And so I put that out there. Other people also started complaining, black and brown people saying, hey, I'm posting about social justice things as well. And I'm not getting the same views and likes that I had before. And so that's when I was like, hey, I need to do something quick. We need to create a space so that we can start, you know, pushing back against the grain, pushing back against the algorithm, which is kind of popular now. But at the time, it really wasn't. Um, So I curated the hashtag Black LinkedIn so we could all find a place to kind of amplify ourselves. Um, And especially, again, these topics of of conversation that need to be had, um, but most importantly, in the workplace, because what happens outside definitely affects what happens inside the workplace as well. And make sure you tell them how many times your account's been suspended or they, they didn't looked at your profile or, or then checked it out because LinkedIn does some 
some yes. stuff. Yeah, LinkedIn really does do some unique stuff. I, I definitely want to talk about something in particular. Uh, Black LinkedIn itself ended up going into becoming an article for the New York Times. And so with that kind of publicity came a lot of backlash for me personally um, in my life, but also on LinkedIn to the point where they thought they had to kind of block messages from my um, profile because I was getting a lot of threats and, and hate mail and all of that. I even had like, porn sent to my gmail account because i have my gmail email connected you know on there uh, for contact reasons and so a lot of things were just happening and i think you know it wasn't discussed with me through linkedin they just started doing it and so i had friends messaging me that i wasn't getting their messages um they thought i was ignoring them and i didn't even know their messages were actually existing and so i typed in their name and then i, I realized somebody had messaged me so LinkedIn having the ability to do that, but never notified me that, that that action was actually happening to me. Again, you know, LinkedIn also putting out fillers and wanting to talk to people, a part of this group, I chose not to be as featured as a lot of other prominent DEI folks that were in that, that um, newspaper article, uh, just because I really believe in doing the work. I also work for John Hopkins, so I do believe in having a certain level of, of privacy. And so they were reaching out to them about Black LinkedIn when it was like, they're not the founders of this movement. They're not the founders of Black LinkedIn. And so they were having conversations about what they, you know, what could be done better, you know, but I'm just kind of like, but then you just wrote a letter and said that it never even happened and there's no algorithm issue. So why are you reaching out to anybody in the article if you don't believe that what I'm saying is true? You know, and then at the same time, you're filtering my my inbox. So you're aware of who I am. They said they were going to have a conversation with me and it never happened. So, you know, yeah, tech, they're watching everything you do. They know the conversations that you're having on the platform. Uh, LinkedIn is very much aware. I think they even still have a subgroup right now of Black creators on the platform that is based around Black LinkedIn that I have not been privileged to as well. So that just tells you the target that kind of comes around when you, when you start something like what I did. Yeah. I know. And obviously we talk a lot about discrimination and, you know, your own career professionally having that, but I think people overlook the actual discrimination that's having within social media platforms, within just tech itself. Yeah. Censorship is such a big thing right now. And again, they're collecting data and, you know, as a database person, right. Who also collects data, there's so many different ways that they could do that. But of course, you know, the algorithm or whatever. So if you say something against a company, of course, they're going to put you in a certain category and that can, you know, help or harm you. And so I think that for me, especially them coming out with LinkedIn help, it's like they get to choose who they promote and help and who they kind of censor and disregard. And so in a way, I have felt the backlash behind that for sure. Yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder. So how do you, how did you get into just being very passionate about this? You know, is there something that happened as you were growing up that has kind of motivated you or is this something that's always just been kind of forefront what kind of led you to start being yeah, so passionate I think, yeah I think I've always been passionate about diversity and inclusion I'm from you know ethnically diverse family and background I grew up around the military so maybe that's where I like to attribute a lot of my passion for it um, from right because I grew up in a small town and all we really had was the military base so I was seeing different kids and, and my own teachers, right, coming in and out were all different colors, right? Um, and I think branching out into the real world and realizing that, you know, there was all these stigmas and things, and I just felt like there has to be something I could do. But my parents are huge, like, advocate people and um, have done a lot of groundwork, even in my own town, to push certain initiatives. And so I've always taken a part of like, you know, Martin Luther King parades and, and things of that nature. But yeah, um, my cousin, Clara Jefferson was one of the most influential people in me starting my advocacy and just, just helping me curate what that would look like as a career. Wow. Um, and, and it's crazy that you say this because that this, the LinkedIn thing is very real. I got over 17,000 connections on my LinkedIn. And if I post something, I might get four or 500 views at most. But I know the reason why. And a lot of the things that I may post, I'm just going to keep it real. I'm not going to hold back just because it's a professional platform and it's social media. Yes, I know everything that I say is going to be protected. 
But at the same point in time, I know that the site is not promoting what I'm attempting to get out there to the public. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've had views more than probably 8,000 on a post. So yes, what you said is very real. So with that, what kinds of discrimination have you experienced within the workforce? Oh my gosh, I, I think my top three, right, is, as far as being a Black woman of color, um, um, in the workplace, I've experienced racism. Um, I've experienced, you know, discrimination based on my gender, being a female. Um, and then I've also experienced maybe social economical discrimination against me um, in regards to where are you from or you know, is your family middle class? Where'd you go to school? You know, those kind of questions that people uh, tend to use to kind of size you up and, and decide how they're going to treat you and what like respect they should give you, I guess, within certain um, cultural cliques and things of that nature. So those are like the three, the top three that I've experienced. Yeah, it's a shame for sure. So, and again, back to your passion and, you know, wanting to change how things are, you know, Diversity, equity, and inclusion are hot topics right now, something that have been really promoted, which is obviously great right. to see. You know, how do you define it? And you know, why is it important to you? I think we touched right. on it a little bit. But yeah, yeah why is diversity, it, it is really different for everybody. And I always I love the opportunity kind of to talk about this and dive into it a little bit more. But to me, diversity is just a different range of like social and like ethnic backgrounds, right? Um, there's different things to focus on, including like sexuality, gender, race, uh, culture, ableism, um, social economic things as well, right? Um, and then when it comes to equity, I really believe in like shared value and being like impartial to things um, that there's a um, good distribution of access to power, right? And I'm not talking like the power to just tell other people what to do, but I'm um, self-governance, right? Um, I can self-govern myself in a way that I could be myself in certain places and still have the same access to benefits and things of that nature. So when I think about inclusion, I think about it in practice and maybe policy, which to me, inclusion, those are the two really big things there, um, is providing access to those who've been like excluded or marginalized um, based on their perceived inabilities, right, by, by someone else um, that has access to that power. Um, so that's how I kind of break down diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I feel that it's really a key element uh, right now, even before now, uh, a key element because we have diverse, diverse world, right? We have diverse workplaces. Um, so we need to have diverse solutions. We need to have diverse thoughts, creativeness, products that are coming out of these companies um, because we have diverse people buying those, those products, right? Um, and to have that kind of power over someone's life, right? And a lot of times in a daily aspect, if you think about the medical institution that I am in, right? That all kinds of people come through a hospital. It's not just one type of person, right? Um, so it's really great to, it's really great to give up, give people the chance to grow and broaden their perspectives about people and places in the world out there. Respect to that, that answer right there. The next question would be, how would you advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion with colleagues who do not understand its importance? Because we got plenty like that right now. <laughs> we do. We do have plenty of people. I think my, you know, stance maybe on LinkedIn might be a little bit harsher than like my stance in real life in corporate settings, uh, because I run into a lot of people who don't even know what I do, like as far as diversity, equity, inclusion. And so for me, it's a lot of questions. So I have to ask them like, hey, have you ever felt uncomfortable before? What did that feel like for you? What did that look like for you? Um, have you ever done something different from the norm, right? Um, have you ever been in a discriminatory situation? I think we've all had that experience. Even people think that white people don't experience discriminatory um, issues in their lives, but in, in actuality, they do. Everybody has some form of bias or prejudice, including myself as a DEI person, but I'm lucky and fortunate enough to be able to access tools, right? And have a group of people that can check me in those types of situations. And so um, with that being said, I think there has to be an understanding of self and then an understanding of your place in the world and kind of how that affects you. And then also just what do you think about, you know, having a growth mindset? Um, and so for me uh, with colleagues, those are the things that I'm really 
tackling and kind of asking those big questions and, and, and curating their experience based off of those questions with me, right? To encourage them to look into what diversity and inclusion means to them. I think a lot of people think about it in this whole big, you know, experience, but it really is an individualized thing. At the end of the day, it's, it's individual choices that led us here and it'll be individual choices that, that tend to get us out. So my main focus is really just dissecting with people know what they find offensive, what are the major hot topics that are going on that they feel like they want to discuss. You know, some people want to discuss um, Black Lives Matter, and some people want to discuss women, women and abortion, and some people want to discuss, you know, LGBTQ plus marriage. So all those things are very, very different. Yeah, and I think it brings a, a point too that you know a lot of it's uncomfortable conversation. A lot of it is kind of opening your eyes to things that you know you typically wouldn't see. Like there's experiences that I have that are different than obviously what you've had or what Jeremy's had. Right. So, you know, I think a lot of that, it's fear in a lot of ways to basically say that there is something else out there that I'm not familiar with myself. And so I think that what you've said is absolutely 100% correct. Right. So, right. And so yeah. how do you kind of work through that fear? I guess, obviously, having the conversation yes. seems to be the most popular way of doing that. But yeah, how do you handle those kinds of awkward sort of, I don't know how to have a conversation with you about this, you know? Right. Handling fear is like the big question. I'm so glad that you pointed that out because a lot of it is fear. And I think as somebody who's been offended by somebody who offended you, right, you kind of have to take a step back in a way and not take it so personal and kind of see it as somebody is just fearful. They don't know what to do. And their first reaction might not be um, the best reaction. It might not even be personal to you. It's very personal to them. I feel scared. I'm going to put a, you know, a, a wall up or do something, you know, to kind of push you away. And so for me working with different groups and what is, I've worked primarily with students, right. And like, you know, faculty, professional and things of that nature is role-playing game playing. I feel like that a lot of, as adults, we've moved away from game playing. Maybe we'll do it with the Nintendo, but it's not the same as being intentional and having some kind of external result, right. Affecting somebody else. Um, so for me, um, role-playing theory has been what has worked best. Um, you can't always do that in, in, a, in a quick moment, right? Where you really just have to correct somebody right then and there. But for big groups and long-term processes, it's just getting people to act out scenarios, right? How, you know, if somebody is discriminatory in the workplace, having a couple of actors act that out with somebody because it's like, there's no pressure on them, right? You didn't do it, you're just role-playing, um, and I feel like putting somebody else in someone's shoes is what has really changed the dynamic and getting people on board about diversity and inclusion. So every practitioner is going to be different. And I'll probably talk about that a little bit later um, in understanding the diversity. But for me, it's, it's gameplay and it's role playing um, that really helps people empathize with what it feels to be discriminated against. Yeah, that's a really interesting solution. That's not one that I've heard before. It sounds like, a, in some ways, a fun, really that's honestly, a fun way of doing things. You know, that is, is that's a great approach. It really is. I, you know, I took a class on it um, in my master's. I took a class twice because it was just that good in learning the practice. It's by uh, Paulo Freire. Um, he is a Brazilian philosopher. Um, he does a lot of theories and things like that around this. Um, the United Nations, I've taken classes with them as well. And they also use this method too, to train their persons when they're dealing with cultural critical situations as well. So it's definitely not new. It's just something that I feel like a lot of DEI people are not practicing as much. They're just doing more program type things. But I think being actionary and doing this type of thing over and over and over again is a psychological thing. So diversity is not just, it's not flat. There's so many ridges and hills and there's so many different um, concepts um, and practices out there that, that work in different situations. So, yeah. And, and speaking of fear, so there's a there was a video that circulated via the LinkedIn space. I believe you posted it and I reposted it via the untapped recruiting page on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. where a young lady was in a Wendy's. Um, she has a white manager for a boss. He called her out her name, the B word. Right. Um, and then also, you know, she was just basically saying she wasn't done cleaning out the frost machine. When the, there's an entire investigation that must take place, the manager is getting the opportunity to continue to work while she is suspended 
pending the investigation and potentially without pay. You posted under that and you stated that you went through that, that type of experience. Can you tell us more about it and tell us what you thought about that situation? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to think about companies. They're there to kind of protect themselves and protect what they consider their best assets. And typically that's going to be from the top down and not the bottom up. And I think changing that corporate structure, right, in, in a bureaucratic type of way, because usually that's how they function, um, has been very, very damaging in a lot of ways and psychologically. But again, the, the company is really more so worried about their bottom line and their policies and procedures will protect their bottom line before they protect um, their low, lo lower level employees in this case. And so, yeah, I have personally experienced that. Uh, I was, you know, discriminated based on, you know, speaking up about something as a diversity specialist, as what I was hired for. But sometimes you don't always get the warmest reception in those ways. And, you know, I was kind of ushered out of the company based on that. Um, it was like, everything was fine. I checked in with my boss and then, you know, I was, I wasn't, you know, being treated right. Let me just say like, I was an office manager, but I wasn't, I didn't have any financial resources to do things. So I was coming out of my own pocket, paying for things. Um, and then my work was being given to other people because they were male, you know, oh, they'll put the, this together or they'll go out and buy this or whatever it was. And so those types of things do happen in the workplace. And, and there's a particular way that black and brown people are looked at as untrustworthy, right? And I had more, I had more degrees than my boss, right? Um, more accolades than my boss. I had, like I said, I had already worked in, in, in my industry for a very long time. I've been in there about 10, 12 years now um, to age myself. But yeah, so that was kind of my situation. I loved how she stayed calm. I loved how she stayed respectfully in her speech. Not that I feel like that should be any indicators that if she didn't stay respectful, that she shouldn't have gotten you know, um, compensated or, or anything for um, the process after. But I have been in that situation and I have been removed from the workplace with my final check and, and that was my severance and I had to kind of keep it pushing. All I can say is everybody refer to episode one when she made the point about I have more accolades than my boss. I have more degrees than my boss. Please refer to our first episode. I talked about that heavily. Continue on, Emmett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, you bring up, again, good points. It's, you know, things that a lot of, and honestly, that stuff wouldn't have been seen had it not been, you know, kind of today's day and age. I mean, social media is obviously a, something that's very powerful and can really negatively impact your life based off of what you do and what you post and what you say. But at the same time, you brought up things like George Floyd earlier. You talked about, obviously, the situation mm -hmm. here with Wendy's. Like, these videos are really shining a, unfortunately a, a dark you know they're shining a light on a lot of these darker areas of of society but you can see that it's obviously making an impact and it's challenging for sure um, right i think we need to just believe again i, I think i i even saw it online it was like believe black women you know <laughs> what i mean when we're talking because we are a double minority and we could be a triple my uh, you know minority in the sense that we could be lgbt Q, we could be, you know, a disabled um, and then still be black and still be a woman, right? So we have really experienced a lot of forms of oppressions that a lot of people just don't have, you know, even being a mother, right, can be looked upon in a certain way as a black woman, where even as a single white woman, you don't get looked at, right? They might, a single white woman might even get the benefit of having childcare over a black woman because a black woman might not even know to ask about those certain things. So Yes, having a camera and being able to videotape what is going on in the workplace. If you're like me and you work in tech, you don't really have that option, right? Because they already have it written in your, your handbooks that you can't disclose that type of information and that will deplete, it could deplete any claim. Now, it depends on how severe the claim is. We've seen a lot of sexual harassment and things like that. So not in those cases, but sometimes it can, you know, cut it out because, you've recorded or used documents from in-house. So those things can affect you as well. And I think a lot of black and brown people just don't know how to navigate that corporate system. And it gets a lot harder depending on what field you're in, whether it be medical or tech, um, quite like myself. Indeed, indeed. And you, you're hitting on this point about women. And I'm so glad that you're here to discuss this because this next question is really uh, centered towards that. 
So how would you address the underrepresentation of women in senior level positions? Because as you know, that is one of the biggest issues that we have in the DEI space. You know what? I think it starts really, really young. As somebody who mentors um, myself and I mentor Black women um, right now, I think you have to make Black women believe that the opportunities exist at a very young age, right? Yes, you could be a doctor. Yes, you could be a lawyer. And you can also be a C-suite executive, right? I think when you put, place that seed into someone and you sow it early on, when the pushback starts to come, the advocacy for themselves, that self-awareness starts to kick in. So to me, that's one way. I think other, um, you don't you don't have to be a woman, you could be a man, C-suite level person, but having conversations with the youth that you want to inspire that, hey, one day you can be this, uh, whether you're a woman or black or whatever, really opens them up to that. So that would be one way for me. Um, I also think that hiring committees there needs to be a proven record of the people who are on hiring committees that they are not biased right whether you have to go through their twitter feed or whatever it is like i think there needs to be some mindfulness had they taken the right courses to show that they're not biased towards um women that are interviewing for some of these positions i think we need to sign consent forms that are say that they're not going to be biased and if you are you will be suspended without pay or if you know, worst comes to worst, you will be fired, right? Um, depending on what what it is that you've done um, and holding people back. And I think also just having the requirement of a certain number of women for C-suites being sourced and then also being interviewed. Um, this is something that we do re really big at my department at John Hopkins is that we do take a proactiveness in sourcing Black and Brown folks and women and LGBTQ people and putting them in the pipeline because you can't say that they're not there if you have curated a pipeline and you've spent time sourcing those specific individuals. So having a certain number requirement, um, you know, three women need to make it to the second round, two women need to make it to the final round and something like that just shows a proactiveness in that. So offering also, my last one is offering honest feedback to those candidates that have interviewed if they don't get the job, like really curating a one page thing or half a page and just telling them all the things that they could improve on. So when they go interview for their next senior level position, they have come prepared um, and, and to be able to promote themselves in a positive light. So that's what I would do. When you've talked about having a certain quantity of women or black or people of color, you know, kind mm -hmm. of set aside to say, okay, we need that many people to be placed or moved on to the next round with an interview or meet with the, right. the hiring manager, things like that. There's this sort of assumption that, well, you're just, that's a, it's a pity hire or, you know, you're just trying to hit a number. What's kind of your way of counteracting those sorts of comments? Right. I think we have to look at systems. A lot of the systems that are in place are very Eurocentric systems. Um, and there, a lot of them are out of date. And so I feel like without the right systems and sourcing, recruiting, HR, and then also retention, which is something that doesn't really get talked about, there's no way to really say that your, your numbers really match your theory unless you're putting things in practice, right? You have to do something different. You cannot say the same thing and inspect a different result, right? We call that insanity, right? And so we can't have these insane metrics to, to say that this is going to work. You want different results, right? Oh, we keep getting these, you know, white male CEOs and we keep having harassment issues and, you know, we keep having economic issues. We keep having discrimin discrimination. Okay, well, what would it look like if we hired an Asian female or male C uh, CFO? You know what I mean? What would that look like for us? And what change could that bring? What culturally could they contribute to some of these places and spaces. And we know that culture building is a, a great asset to have. And, and those different, again, thoughts, right? Different thoughts matter. And so I think unless when you try, you're going to fail. And so I always kind of try to lead with that. You're already failing, <laughs> but you want to fail yes. forward, right? You want to fall into this newness. You want a, a different change. And yes, it might be scary, but with newness comes new ideas and, um, and just a new way of, of running things. And so for me, that's kind of what I say, like, yes, you've been doing a decent job so far, but you want to be great. And greatness comes from a difference of ideas and thoughts and applications. 
And so by doing this, this is what we're, we're trying to curate in this space is having that, um, is by opening it up to all people. And yes, the, the best person should get the position, but I think defining who, who is a best hire for a company that should diversify itself as well. And if that best person shouldn't be a good old boys club, right? Like that's mm. the, the, the indicator of this is the best person because we can grab a beer together. That, that's not the best person for the job. <laughs> I assure you, you can get a beer Ooh. with a lot of she, she hit us with that good old boys club comment, ladies and gentlemen. When I say that one right there is it, huge because it, it's going to lead into what I'm going to say next. The blacks are always going to be considered as very opinionated, even though we're, we're very high skilled professionals in the workspace. Majority of us are probably high end eagles. We are leaders. We try to lead the way. The problem is, is that in our space, we are always asked to change in some kind of form, way, fashion. Oh, you got to change the way you talk. Oh, you got to change the way you speak to someone. You got to change the way your resume may look. You have to change the way you may have this approach to this CEO. But I, I noticed I, I noticed with our other counterparts, let's say race-wise, they may not have to change. They can just go in and they can say freely whatever they want. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, yeah. I, I, have no, I have noticed that for sure. And I, I remember in my um, undergrad, I actually did Webb Du Bois's double consciousness theory and I was applying it more so to the Japanese internment camp situation but that theory you know in the black community weighs heavily we know that we have this dual consciousness that we have to be one way in corporate America and another way like you said in our own personal lives I do believe in that sense that we are natural leaders and that we've been put in these servitude type of positions right not these leadership positions where we can drive force and change so my ideas around that are that they need to, we need to start building ourselves and looking at ourselves as good enough, right? To be in these spaces, to not have to conform, to understand our own qualities that we bring to it and not have to be whitewashed or tokenized in a lot of different ways. But I feel that because I've definitely had to do that in the workplace, right? Where I've had to change the way that I enunciate. Or I've had to change the way I wear my hair. I'm a curly hair girl, right? Um, so people are like, why don't you straighten your hair? You know, um, why don't you talk like this? I'm very cultured. You guys can tell if I'm on Black LinkedIn, I talk very Black, okay? <laughs> I do that because I'm very comfortable in my Blackness, you know? Um, and so I think you have to go where you're celebrated. You know, we, we say that a lot of times. I think I, I feel fine in my workplace right now. And I think because I work in the medical space, like, my blackness is fine because of that. Yes. Um, but um, I think there's a difference in like, are you corporate enough? But corporate is always associated to Eurocentrism and whiteness. And if you're not doing those white cultural things in corporate society, you're deemed as othered or incompetent. Incompetent is such a big thing when a, a white person or a per person melanin deficient person um, does not understand somebody else's culture. Um, and so to me, like I said, I think you really have to stand firm in who you are um, and what you bring to the table. And I, and I say this again, because I've seen it with Indian people. Um, I've seen it with our own people, African people, you know, especially Nigerians who are really big in the tech space. They can sometimes be conforming, but a lot of them can still sometimes be themselves and bring them their full selves to work. So I think we have to learn from other different cultures, like how they're navigating that and still, because at the same time, I will say this, if you are doing that, you have to be like myself, high performing. Yes. Right. Like you have to give something to be yourself. So for me, it's like, but she does an amazing job. So I will put up with her. Right. I'll put up with the blackness. I'll put up with the whatever, whatever, because she's high performing. So a lot of those um, black and brown folks are high performing people. So they're able to bring their cultural self to work, but not fully. I don't I don't think I've ever seen anybody fully bring themselves to work because corporate is just defined in a certain way. And there's a certain expect, expectation of all people that is just white. Yep. Yeah. And you've mentioned obviously having to talk a specific way or act a specific way, you know, something that I, I think about that has a lot of negative connotation is 
abonics, I guess is a lot of times with people. Mm-hmm. You know, what is your perception or thought on abonics is, you know, because I, like I said, I think it's got a negative connotation. It means you're unprofessional in some ways. There's, there's, you're, you're lacking something, education, whatever it may be. What's kind of your thoughts on staying? Right. How do you kind of live within your culture and support that and, you know, bring the, the uniqueness that you have while also having a corporate way about right. you? I think you mentioned a little bit of it by being high performing. Um, but yeah, what's, right. your kind of, what's your, what's your saying on ebonics and, you know, that terminology and. Yeah, uh, I think it's super important. I, again, I think it's d- different if you're customer facing or if you're not customer mm-hmm. facing, right. Um, if that really matters um, within the workspace, but I do think, yeah, ebonics is, it's something that is in the culture. I mean, people listen to rap music all the time, but all of a sudden you go into you know, you're blazing your Drake on, on your way into the office, you know, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, or brown right now. He's certified, certified lover corporate boy right now. Um, and then, you know, you get in the workspace and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, somebody would say something like that. And so, yeah, I think that it, it is, you, is it universal? I think the knowledge of some of it is universal. I think other parts need to be educated because it is a cultural thing, right? With something that we've lived with on an every single day basis where other people are just being reintroduced to it. So do I think it should be like the common language? No, I think it is a good thing to have amongst peers, right? But I do understand the corporate language uh, established by companies across the board so that you guys are communicating efficiently, right? As somebody who is a coordinator, I understand the value of communication. Um, and so I just think that the blanketness of communication should be, should not be so white, right? It should have some cultural elements, like, you know, some cultural slangs and different, you know, cultures. It's not just white culture, you know, a slang here and there, you know, it's just not white Southern culture, you know, a slang here and there. So I think it should just be used when appropriate, right? Every situation is not appropriate for me to just use Ebonics, you know? everybody's not going to understand that. I mean, we have some people come in that are from Germany or other cultures, you know what I mean? Other countries in general that don't understand black Ebonics. Um, so it wouldn't be necessary there. But in, in our in, in black resource groups, things of that nature, if you feel more comfortable talking like that, I think it should be open to, to being able to do that with your peers. But most people, and I will say this, Emmett, uh, most people don't like it because they don't understand it. The same way people get offense when a Hispanic person starts speaking Spanish, right? Or an Asian person starts speaking Mandarin or Japanese or or Tagalog or whatever it is. It's just, you, you're you you're upset because you don't know it versus like taking the time to get to know it and yeah. just, you know, sharing that with people who are open to understanding what that culture is. And Ebonics is a culture as well. And it does take some some form of understanding. You talked about tokenism earlier, and that that actually can go beyond just Blacks. We can really just talk about tokenism with every ethnicity group. So what do you feel companies need to do beyond their current efforts to not only promote diversity in the workplace, but also reduce tokenism? I want to say that that's such a broad question, and I'm going to really try to break it down because every company is going to be different, right? I can't specifically answer what they should be doing to promote diversity within, um, but I can say what they might not be doing. And hopefully that'll shed a little bit light on that. So it is, especially in regards to tokenism as well, it, tokenism is not, um, it's not a safe space. I just want to say that. So anybody that you feel like us in certain cultures would be like, oh, that person is being a, a token, but there's a lot of mental strife that comes from that. So my first thing is going to be questioning em- employees about microaggressions because t- typically microaggressions lead to tokenism. You feel a microaggression against, oh my God, girl, yes, from a white girl, right? She's speaking in your vernacular right there, um, but you feel uncomfortable about that. So you stop saying things like that, right? Around that person, or you ask that person not to kind of speak to you in that kind of way because you don't feel comfortable. Um, and then you start tokenizing yourself and you might say, yes, okay and you're not saying yes okay like you know what I mean um but it, it's like those things bring black women joy when we say that we we also share that culture sometimes with the LGBTQ plus right um so we might 
interchange that vernacular and ebonics with them as well, but that just might not feel comfortable with other people. So check the microaggressions um, that employees are feeling and having a kind of private chat where they can like say, hey, something is happening. I'm, I'm not really enjoying this um, interaction with certain employees or certain groups within, within the company. Overall mental wellness, like I said, check-ins, a lot of a lot of people have mental illnesses that they're not even aware of, right? And, and encouraging them, hey, maybe you should talk to a professional about that. But having somebody with that particular knowledge within your HR space is super important. Um, another thing is workload audits. I think this does not happen enough. Managers are not doing what they're doing when they're doing the peer reviews, uh, when they're uh, reviewing up. No, none of the managers are saying, let's audit your workload. Let's see what you've done. They're not tracking the progress that you're, you're making. They're usually tracking the bad things, right? And they're trying to give you this crappy sandwich of comments, but they're not saying, hey, these are the really great things. And these are the really great skills you need to really work on. And we would like to develop that in this kind of way. Let's audit your workload so we can build some of that functionality in. Um, so that has been a really big thing for me in the DEI space with encouraging that. Um, another thing is just encouraging people to take vacation leave. Why are you letting people uh, curate months of vacation leave and not telling them, hey, this is mandatory after six months, after a year, you need to start using this, um, this leave. I know they did it in the California state uh, system for the school there, you had to, or you would lose your vacation time. Uh, another way is transferring vacation time. Some people don't want to use it, right? Because they're in high performance mode and they're trying to get that promotion. But there are people who need that leave, right? Maternity leave, paternity leave, um, disability, if they don't have the disability insurance that could be passed to somebody else. So being able to have some flexibility with that. Understanding their benefits throughout the year. I hate the fact that benefits are only discussed during open enrollment. Yep. <laughs> benefits yep. for Black and Brown people are so important, and they need to understand all the benefits that are available to them. And I believe that there should be programs and ongoing conversations and check-ins, making sure that they have the, the uh, benefits that they need or are considering those benefits coming up. And I'll give an example really quick. This might be sad to you guys because it was definitely devastating to me, um, especially as a medical professional and some working in that field, in the healthcare field, UNLV does not offer maternity or paternity leave. <laughs> and I was like, um, I won't be having a baby anytime soon. So yeah, you don't get paid leave. And it's like crazy that I'm helping curate these medical professionals, right? These med students. And I work next to this major hospital where all my students are working as well, but I will not be able to get medical, paid medical leave. And there's this course FMLA and there is a um, disability benefits or short-term leave or something like that. But again, you have to pay into those during your benefit package, which I was not aware of that I needed because I am a single woman. Um, but I learned that through, um, I call her my work wife because her husband calls me that because we're so close, but she's having a baby um, this month. And um, yeah, she basically has to return a lot quicker because it just, there's, they, she doesn't have that. And you're paying a premium on top of your um, your medical insurance, right? Because that maternity leave isn't included in that. So you're paying outside of that that max premium for that benefit. Um, so had, just to give birth in the hospital, you have to pay for that. Um, so yeah, so that is just something I wanna throw out there. So quizzing people about the employee handbook, making sure that they know the important aspects by quizzing them and then saying they have that knowledge um, is really important. Um, assisting people with financial growth Talking about stocks and all that kind of stuff is, is important if you want to encourage financial growth, because we know that's a big issue in marriages, right? It's making sure that you have financial support, savings, talking about savings, encouraging savings. Yes. Um, and then my last one would just be just um, not only talking about hot topics as far as police brutality, women's rights and abortion, international welfare families, because we do have international professionals that need support as well. Look at things that are going on in Afghanistan right now, right? They have families here in the United States that are worried about their families over there and the health of their families. And so taking the time to figure out what you can do benefits-wise to help them. So yeah, I think there needs to be initiatives for individuals at work and also at home. So I know that was a lot, but 
Um, that's a lot of what I do and a lot of things that I think about on a regular basis as a specialist. And, and let's go find the running rebels that are at uh, Nevada, Las Vegas <laughs> and have a serious conversation with them. Yeah. Because you just told me that they don't offer. No, paid maternity leave. They do not offer that. And that is a, it's a blow for me as a woman, for sure. Family planning, I feel like, as like I said, somebody that works in the healthcare space at UNLV, uh, in a state, it's a state institute. To me, that 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 has to be taken care of at the state level. There's no reason for that to be happening in, in 2021 or beyond. I mean, you can imagine how hard we work and during a pandemic, you know what I mean? And to go through all of that and be told like you maternal or paternal. I mean, luckily, like I said, my coworker spouses are, you know, somewhat working in the tech industry. So they have, you know, the freedom to work remotely. But I could imagine being me as a single woman, I got pregnant in that situation. What the, you know, and we can't use um, medical benefits, right? Because you think, okay, well, maybe you can like go use medical. No, because we have state jobs. So we can't use another form to pay for it. So all those things, like I said, it, it was just heartbreaking for me, really, as a, as a 33-year-old woman going on 34. Um, I'm tired, starting to think about long-term things like that, but it's just yeah. not offered. Yeah. Well, that's mind-blowing, especially, as you said, in this day and age, like, that seems like a standard. You know, there's there shouldn't... I mean, I can yeah. understand. I know paternity leave is somewhat of a relatively new concept, but maternity leave seems, you know, again, at this time in human history, right. and in the first Pretty world common. country that we are, we should have it everywhere, so. Right, so UNLV gets a, a big thumbs down for me on that one, but hopefully being who I am, being the advocate that I am, I need to find resource groups that are on the ground, probably trying to tackle that issue and, and find out for myself what the problem is and if I could be beneficial in any way. And you guys know, I, I will try my best to be beneficial here in, in changing that because that can't continue to happen. No, that's important work that you're definitely doing for sure. Thank you. Um, continue on, Emmett, because right now I'm just speechless right now. I just can't believe what I just heard. <laughs> Jeremy, okay, you, yeah. <laughs> Jeremy, take a break. <laughs> I need to detox that one. Yeah, that was painful. Like I said, when I heard it, it was it was painful for me uh, to hear that. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only other question that I mean, I've got. I know we're coming up on the hour, so I want to be respectful of your time too, Patricia. Again, once again, thank you so much for for being on this call with us. It's been very eye opening. Yeah, we appreciate the the conversation. So, last thing that we typically wrap up with is how can Untapped play a role in fighting against discrimination in the workforce? You know, I think that we all have our part in like advocating for anti-discrimination. I think speaking up and speaking up very often is a huge part of ending discrimination, talking about what's offensive, why it's offensive, um, tools and mechanisms that a person can use to kind of mitigate um, in those situations. Because a lot of it, like you said, is about the unknown. Um, so helping somebody navigate that unknown by equipping them with the things to say, be you know sympathetic in, in those moments. Um, I also think that donating to causes that are on the ground and really doing the work or not. We have you know done a lot of donating to like Black Lives Matter, but there's so many other groups that really need our support that are really working in a lot of policy type things. Government, uh, as we know, this this year alone uh, with, with, you know, President Biden is such a serious part of our lives, right? So we need to really invest in those groups that are doing that type of advocacy work. Bringing the issue, like I said, to the offender's attention, having something actionable to help them change is super important. But also, I think we live in a cancel culture. So I do want to throw out having some grace, <laughs> mm -hmm. having grace for people mm -hmm. that are making these offenses, but being firm on the change that is required for them to reenter a connection with you and your, your group or your bond or whatever, by saying like, we will show you grace, but in return, we would like it if you re-educated yourself on these hot topics. And of course, a big one right now is with the baby and, and the comments that he's kind of made. And I'm really hoping, again, rooting for that for him and also the culture behind rap um, that they try to become more open and inclusive. I think Little Nas X is doing a really great job, even with his pregnancy, his full pregnancy post, because he really is shedding light on women's issues as well. So being an advocate across the board, you know, encouraging LGBTQ plus people to be advocates of, of women's rights and, and other rights and vice versa, the 
API community as well. Um, so that's kind of what you guys can do is just really re-educate yourself as often as possible and to show grace. Those, those are my biggest things. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Appreciate the feedback too and definitely agree. Jeremy, you got any 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 closing thoughts? Um, I think with this podcast and, and the things that we have discussed today, there are some companies that really do need to listen to this one and really take in what was stated because there's a lot of things that were covered. We talked about quite a bit straight down the line uh, from LinkedIn to this situation with women to what they need to do in the corporate space to turn things around for our women. So I appreciate you, Patricia, from day one. I remember when um, I sent the request (laughs) that you reached out to me and said, da, 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 da. We met on Zoom, we had a conversation. And ever since then, there's been nothing but support for one another. So I I do appreciate you for everything that you're doing um, in the DEI space. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you, the opportunity to to speak uh, to your audience here on Untapped. I hope that you guys will tap into utilizing Black LinkedIn. You can definitely find me on there. Uh, I'm there quite a bit. I'm curating my own website as well, just for my own personal portfolio. So, you know, feel free to look me up on the web, but I'm glad to be tapping in and I look forward to everybody else doing the same and really, again, just re-educating yourself about diversity and inclusion and applying some of these things within your own workspace. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. We definitely appreciate it. You know, anywhere else that they can find you, Patricia? Yeah, well, like I said, I'm I'm mainly on LinkedIn. That's where to find me. I do have a website. It is at sandrascottgatlin.com. Um, so I'm sure that will show up somewhere in some post, some place. But you can find me on Clubhouse too. I actually do get, get on Clubhouse and, and chime in on some diversity chats that are going on. I hope to curate some of my own um, within that space too. But yeah, I'm really just out there and about a lot of major tech conferences. You'll probably see me um, in attendance as well. So yeah, you can find me wherever you can find Black LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Patricia. Thank you for your time. And thank you to our listeners as always. We'll catch you all next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'd be honored if you would review us wherever you listen to our podcast. We are actively looking for people of color to send us their resumes and career aspirations. So please log on to untappedrecruiting.com to learn more.